1: Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we'll discuss the potential economic strengths and weaknesses of President Biden's Build Back Better Act, now being considered in Congress. Our guest is Bill Gale of the Brookings Institution in Washington, DC. Concord Coalition Policy Director, Tori Gorman also joins the conversation. Well, as you probably know, if you're listening to this program, Democrats in Congress are pushing to finalize and enact a broad social spending and climate change plan that would cost about $1.8 trillion over 10 years and be paid for with a number of new tax provisions targeted at large corporations and households earning more than four hundred thousand dollars a year we'll ask bill gale about that with a particular focus on the tax portion because that's where his main area of expertise is bill uh, is the rj and francis miller chair in federal economic policy and a senior fellow in the economic studies program at the brookings institution Uh, He is co director of the Tax Policy Center, a joint venture of Brookings and the Urban Institute. And he's also director of the Retirement Security Project. Bill and Tori, welcome to Facing the Future. Thank you. Thanks, Bob. Well, uh, Bill, uh, the, the premise of the Build Back Better Act, as I understand it, is to have a positive economic effect over the long term by encouraging people to join and remain in the workforce. Uh, you know, a lot, of go, a lot of attention has gone into the overall size of the bill and people tend to talk about it as a quote-unquote reconciliation act, which is kind of difficult for people to understand what, what that means. So these provisions that are intended to enhance long-term economic growth, um, are there some that you think would, would be particularly good at, at doing that?
0: I think the general theme of the Build Back Better approach is what you might call democratic supply side economics. That is, it focuses on uh, uh, human capital and the role of human capital uh, in the economy. So there's an emphasis on education. Uh, there's an emphasis on childcare. There's an emphasis on healthcare, uh, uh, housing affordability, things that that you wouldn't necessarily directly think of as as boosting uh, the size of the economy. But when you think about actually how people live and what enables them to work and what enables them uh, to be productive, these are the types of things uh, that people have in mind. So I think the goals are, are good ones. There's a tremendous amount of evidence that government uh, intervention in uh, social policy uh, and health policy can have very positive long-term consequences Uh, for the economy. It's not something that's going to pay off necessarily in the next uh, six months. But in terms of of building back better, uh, which is a well-chosen phrase here, uh, 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 this is the type of thing uh, that the economy needs, especially coupled uh, with the infrastructure package, which is moving on a parallel course.
1: So, um, and and the method of paying for it now, as a... uh... As a mm-hmm. uh, as a deficit hawk, of course, I always worry about uh, is stuff going to be paid for. So it's posi- It's a positive sign that um, that there are attempts made to you know make sure that the bill would be paid for. So on the on the revenue side, is is that uh, uh, equally pro growth? Do you think, or uh, would it generate enough revenue to cover the new spending?
0: Uh, I think the the Deficit issue right now is uh, second or third order compared to the structural issues that are being discussed uh, on both the tax and the spending side. And I say that as someone who's long been concerned about budget deficits, who's written a book about long-term budget deficits, et cetera. Uh, but I think right now the the structural change uh, in the economy is, is the first order issue. And uh, getting a system in place to finance it over time is the next... Uh, issue, But whether the whether the bill literally pays for itself or not, uh, I don't think is that important, especially given that they're they're basically in the ballpark uh, in terms of the level of revenues. The bigger issue to me is the structure uh, of revenues. And um, I think the nicest thing you can say there is the Democrats have been searching for a politically feasible. Uh, set of revenue increases that, that where political feasible means getting the support of enough people in Congress. Uh, I think the original package had enough support in the public, uh, but the way Congress is set up, you need a majority in both the House and the Senate. And of course, the uh, two senators have been holding out, Cinema and Manchin, uh, but in frankly, in the current situation in the Senate, every Democrat is the marginal vote. And so so every Democrat has a say uh, in what goes in the final package. And that we know is a recipe for a, uh, a difficult, a poorly designed uh, economic package. And so you've seen them throw out uh, a number of ideas or not even consider a number of ideas that I think would have been very good, which would be tightening up the estate tax, uh, eliminating the pass-through deduction, uh, taxing capital gains at death. Uh, all those things would raise money uh, in a progressive fashion uh, and not do any particular harm to the economy, uh, those are all off the table. Uh, and now we're talking about things like the AMT and uh, raising the top tax rate uh, items, which uh, uh, are going to increase uh, tax avoidance considerably. Uh, but the, I mean, the main message is the economic considerations and the political feasibility considerations uh, don't seem uh, to line up very well.
2: Let's stay with the uh, the the economic considerations of the bill for a second. I have tons of questions on the revenue side, but I'm curious, um, given, I, I understand what you're saying about uh, not really concerned, at least a primary concern about the deficit impact of this. But unfortunately for the, the way that they're trying to pass this legislation, Through reconciliation, it's a process that requires that the legislation be paid for, at least on paper, over over 10 years. And as a consequence, they're having to shoehorn certain benefits in, in order to fit within the amount of revenue that they think has the political support to pass. And that's forcing Democrats to make some interesting decisions, um, choosing to jettison some policies, but also choosing to shorten some policies for things like, uh, most notably, the expanded child tax credit and the expanded earned income tax credit, which were uh, both broadened and and enhanced, made more robust earlier this year, which uh, if you look at statistics have been enormously helpful in, in eliminating poverty among children. Um, They're only uh, at this point. I mean, things can always change. Right. At this point, they're only planning to extend those proposals for one year. What type of economic growth do you get from policies that are not permanent, that are instead only uh, forwarded a year at a time uh, or only temporary in nature? Do you still expect them to have that economic bang for the buck?
0: Well, this issue you raise a really interesting set of issues. The the uh, use of temporary policies, of course, is not new, right? Uh, to the Democrats in twenty twenty one, it's it's uh, uh, it's a sort of a long standing effort to shoehorn policies that people want into the into the budget rules, which were uh, designed in a different time for a different purpose. Um, uh, I think the idea is to get these policies in place uh, and then to find resources in the future to uh, extend them. Uh, It would be, you know, again, this is the conflict in of the economic first best and politically feasible. Uh, I think if they could get the child credit, the expanded child credit in on a permanent basis, and by the way, the bill does have the refundability of the child credit in on a permanent basis, I think if they could do that, they would do that. The problem is they can't get 50 votes in the Senate uh, to do that. So um, there's this uh, very difficult uh, compromise effort uh, between the various wings of the party, and it's more than just progressives and uh, moderates. It's it's uh, you know the people that want the state and local tax deduction and and the people that don't and so on. And it, it, it's a very complicated uh, optimization uh, situation. That I, I'm not saying that to justify what I don't think is great policy. I'm just saying that to explain what I think is going on.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, wanted to talk a minute, you mentioned earlier when we we're talking about the revenue offsets, um, the the proposal, the revenue offsets uh, as they exist right now, and they could certainly change, they have changed you know, dramatically over the last 10 days. So, but where they exist right now, um, two of the proposals are, uh, one is a a 15% corporate minimum tax uh, domestically, but then also a 15% global minimum tax. Um, Here in the United States, we've had experience with a corporate alternative minimum tax years ago, they jettisoned it as part of the 2017 tax reforms. And so I wanted to, as a tax professional, wanted to get your thoughts on how, what they're talking about now, is it different than what we had before? Or are they trying to reinstate a a tax regime that existed before and didn't work very well? Are they trying to make improvements? What what are your thoughts about this new 15% uh, corporate minimum tax?
0: All right. So there are I'm glad you asked this. There are two minimum taxes floating around, uh, a domestic one and a global one. And they are totally different in how people should think about them. Uh, The global minimum tax to me makes a lot of sense. It basically says if companies make money, they have to pay taxes on it somewhere. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, there are various ways of of squaring the circle on that. The global minimum tax is one way of doing that. Given, given how difficult it is to negotiate across countries, let's, let's call that one a, a win with perhaps an asterisk because maybe it's not designed ideally. The domestic corporate minimum tax is totally different. It basically says, if a company takes too much uh, deductions uh, in this country, or uh, foreign tax uh, credits, uh, then we're going to move to an alternative system that takes back some of those. And uh, it doesn't fundamentally, uh, it doesn't, minimum, that kind of minimum tax doesn't fundamentally make sense. It's basically saying we can't get these things out of the tax code that we think is giving you too low of a tax payment. So we're just going to pose an alternative tax uh, on top of it, which then ends, away, ends up taking away some of the incentives uh, that companies already have, uh, it, would, it, it, it would not affect uh, that many companies. Uh, I'm not saying that as a defense of the proposal. I'm saying that as a, the effects would not be that widespread mm-hmm. uh, because of various carve-outs uh, in, the, in the domestic minimum tax. So I think, uh, I mean, they, it feels like they pulled that one off the shelf uh, given that the other options had had not worked out, but it, it's—I—I I don't think anyone would describe it as a as an optimal policy, uh, except under very constrained uh, do, circumstances.
2: Do you think it's going to be something that we end up undoing the way we did the last one?
0: Well, it, it, quite possibly, as sort of as a political thing. I mean, cinema has said she doesn't want rate increases. Right? It would make much more sense to increase the rate. Uh, and it would make even more sense to focus on the tax base. That's kind of the, the, um, uh, the missing thing in all of this is, uh, focusing on the tax base, whether it's, uh, 199 or a state capital gains of death or a state tax or so on, uh, uh, proposals that raise rates, uh, if the base is broad enough, then they're going to be very strong revenue raisers. If the base is not Wide enough uh, does not have substantial enough scope, then raising rates is going to is going to largely increase tax avoidance.
2: Yeah, I I think that's the one thing that just drives me absolutely bonkers when we get into this marginal rate argument, because if you have a broader base, number one, you get allows you to reduce your marginal rates, right? But when you also have a broader base, you have less tax evasion, because if you're taxing everything, no matter where you silo your your earnings, your profits, your income, it's going to get taxed. But when you create these special exemptions, when you create these credits, these loopholes, et cetera, that encourages people to to recharacterize their income in order to fit this loophole. And it just, it just doesn't make sense. If we would just broaden the base, we could reduce the rates and have better tax compliance.
0: That's right. And fairer tax system too.
1: Well, one of the things that keeps the base from broadening in this proposal is, is the president's political pledge not to raise taxes on anybody making, you know, uh, less than 400,000 a year. That seems to be, have you know taken a lot of stuff off the table, and I just wonder if it's realistic overall to to do a transformational agenda on the uh, on the social and climate front without asking broader participation from the economy.
0: Uh, so you could finance a very big change in government spending with taxes on people above $400,000. I'm talking about taxing gains at death, wealth tax, uh, uh, various base broadeners, etc. The problem is you can't enact those policies, given the composition of the Democrats in the Congress. So uh, I was not in favor of the pledge when he made it, but I understand why he made it. He wanted to cordon off arguments that Biden's going to raise your taxes, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you could do carbon tax policy or uh, uh, you could do carbon tax policy without violating the pledge if if the carbon tax involved a rebate, right? Uh, uh, you could do a value added tax that way too with a rebate, but then what's the point of the value added tax if it's not raising revenue? Uh, uh, so, but you, you could enact the carbon tax uh, and still keep the pledge. But I don't think, but Biden hasn't pr- even proposed that. His administration has proposed a lot of subsidies uh, for clean energy, but not uh, not taxing uh, emissions. So it, there is a world in which the pledge could lead to a, a an appropriately financed big boost in government spending but it's not the world that we live in
2: and that brings up another question when you start talking about a carbon tax and versus subsidies in general uh when you think about tax policy overall is it better to subsidize good choices or penalize bad choices or do you need both uh
0: i think in in which is better is to penalize bad choices because that'll have the all the same effect as subsidizing good choices w- without having the government spend money. Uh, in this case, you know, uh, I don't think I, I think we're losing any time to have the luxury of either or. Uh, mm. I feel like we need to go all out, you know. Uh, it's probably a bad analogy, but pedal to the metal uh, on uh, climate statement, um, I uh, there's been there's been a huge discussion and debate about whether cap and trade or uh, carbon tax is a better system or some other system is a better system i feel at this stage it's just like pick one and let's do it uh we don't have the luxury of uh debating uh much longer
1: you know uh, in talking to economists of all stripes, you you get a lot of support for a carbon tax. There might be differences in how it would be implemented, but it, it, it's always up there as something that it seems to be an economist's favorite. Why are the politics of a carbon tax so horrible? I mean, is it just anathema to people on the Hill?
0: Oh, that's interesting. Uh, uh, that's a good question. Part of it I think is, uh, it's not just people on the Hill, uh, like Washington state voted down carbon tax a couple of times, although I think they finally enacted one. Uh, I think the issue is partly that uh, it, it's only gonna work best if all countries do this and people are hesitant to have the US do it without other countries doing it. But I feel like if the US did it, that would give us some a lever to uh, get other countries uh, to do it, but there's there's a generic opposition to tax. There's a kind of generic support of uh, 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 you know oil and coal. You see that with Mansion in particular, uh, and you know those are established uh, lobbies. They're they're not easy to to overcome. But the the economics of it are astounding. We could in the in the book that I wrote a couple of years ago, I calculated that we could give every coal worker $250,000 in severance, in severance pay, and uh, that cost would be 1% of the 10-year revenue uh, of a carbon tax.
1: You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I are talking with Bill Gale of the Brookings Institution and one of Washington's top policy experts on tax. We're discussing the president's Build Back Better agenda as it works its way through Congress. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Concord Coalition Policy Director, Tory Gorman, and I are talking with Bill Gale of the Brookings Institution about the president's Build Back Better agenda as it makes its way through Congress. Uh, One of the things that they're hoping for is to raise enough revenue uh, to help pay for the the package, is not just raising new taxes, but... um, doing a better job of collecting the taxes that are already owed. There's something called the tax gap uh, in which uh, you know, various estimates show hundreds of billions of dollars that are owed by taxpayers, but, but not paid. So, uh, you know, Bill, I think you're a proponent of, of doing this and I mean, who could be against uh, not trying to collect the taxes that are owed? So uh, why is it so difficult to enact something like this? What are the, what are the trade-offs involved?
0: Uh, Let's start at the beginning. About one out of every seven dollars that are owed to the federal government uh, are not paid. Uh, And that's the tax gap. It's uh, on the order of five hundred, six hundred billion dollars per year. Uh, uh, It's no great mystery where the money is. Uh, It's in uh, sole proprietorships, partnerships, uh, uh, things like that. Uh, places in the economy where there's no tax withholding, there's no third-party reporting uh, of taxes. So, for example, uh, in the wage sector, if you work for somebody, they withhold taxes on your, from your wages, they send it to the government. Uh, it's very hard to evade that come April 15th when the government has a record of what you've earned and how many taxes you've already paid uh, and you know the government has that record. And so the evasion rate on things like wage income is very low. Uh, the evasion rate on things like partnership income or sole proprietorship income or farm income uh, is extremely high. And the evasion rate is over 50%. That is over half of that income is not reported to the government. Uh, and uh, the evasion rate uh, among uh, most most evasion occurs among very high income uh, households. So it's no mystery where the money is. Uh, the difficulty is that the IRS does not have the resources to go after people. Uh, IR- the IRS budget has fallen more than 20% in real terms in the past decade. Uh, its it's uh, uh, staffing levels have gone way down and its audit staffing levels have gone uh, uh, even farther down, something like 30% over the last uh, uh, 10, 20 years. Uh, IRS commissioners describe losing an entire generation uh, of IRS auditors because of the budget cuts and the uh, uh, congressional attacks on the IRS and so on. Uh, So uh, the administration has basically two proposals. One is to bolster the resources of the IRS. This is mainly uh, computers and staff. And to do that, you need not just money, but you need multi-year money. It's pointless to buy the computers if you don't have the funding next year to actually uh, move the data to them and train people on them and so on. It's pointless to hire staff if you don't get the money in future years uh, to train them and develop them uh, into experts in their field. So, they need the first item is uh, multi year uh, funding, an $80 billion request for funding for the IRS that would go into updating the computer resources, some of their computers are older than I am and updating and uh, expanding their staff. Uh, that doesn't seem that controversial in the sense that everybody knows that's the right idea. The Republicans are still gonna gripe about it, uh, but, but I don't think there's serious disagreement that that, that needs to be done. Uh, the other half of the Biden proposal uh, gets more uh, plaque. And that is the the Biden administration wants uh, financial institutions to report uh, on a uh, report to them uh, accounts that have uh, gross inflows or gross outflows more than six hundred dollars a year. That has now been changed to ten thousand dollars a year, I think, or or that number has been uh, polluted. And the argument the administration gives is that that would help them. Um, <clears throat> track down uh, tax evaders, because it's sort of a follow the money uh, type of theory. Uh, the financial institutions have responded vociferously against this, and there's sort of a doth protest too much uh, aspect to their, to their uh, response. They talk about the, the administrative burdens and so on, uh, which is just totally unbelievable. Uh, the, bank are, the banks already have this information. They already send it to their customers on a monthly basis in their statements. Uh, they're adding one line on the computer code that says they send it to the government uh, cannot possibly be uh, an administrative burden. I mean, if you show me a bank that does your accounts by hand, I will admit that this requirement is a, is a burden. But any bank that uses a computer, it's the simplest thing in the world to, to take this information you already have and send it uh, to the government. So uh, I'm not quite sure what's going on right there, except that the banks really don't want it to happen. And, you know, they're presumably protecting their customers who are the partnerships and sole proprietors and high-income households who were doing all the tax evasion to begin with. So, so um, when I first heard the proposal for the information reporting, I was kind of blase about it. I was like, yeah, okay, that'd be a nice thing to do. Uh, but then when I saw how much the institutions objected, uh, I concluded that it was probably uh, a really good idea uh, and that there's probably money in them, their hills.
1: <laughs> it could be quite a bit.
0: Uh, the administration expects quite a bit of revenue to come in uh, as a result of the information reporting, if the information reporting is 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 enacted.
1: Would that be uh, a long term? I mean, would that be more or less a one time hit, or would it stretch out? I'm just trying to think about this as a funding source.
0: Well, I think it'd be a long term gain because whatever shenanigans are going on right now uh, are happening every year. They would they would either get caught or 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 they would voluntarily. Uh, choose to reduce them. Uh, By the way, the estimates that say that every dollar the IRS spends on auditing, they get $4 or $7 or $12, whatever that that ratio is, it only looks at the money they actually get from the increased auditing. It does not count the increase in voluntary compliance that would occur as a result of a well-publicized campaign that the IRS was enforcing the law more stringently and there's there's big money in the voluntary compliance rate.
2: I think that's an important point though about the, the that you make about voluntary compliance because I think there's a psychological component to to remitting your taxes that are owed. I mean, if you think that everybody is paying their fair share, then you're willing to pay your fair share. But if you think you're the only chump in town who's paying their portion of the tax bill, then suddenly, you know, nobody wants to comply. So, well, I Go ahead.
0: Yeah, yeah. This comes back to the first conversation we were having. The fair. There's two aspects to the paying your fair share. One is, uh, one is, are you are people paying what they legally owe, and the other is, which is this evasion issue. And the other issue is, what is it that people legally owe? Which comes back to this first question about how much are corporations paying, how much are individuals paying, uh, and so on. And so the the two issues are related. Uh, but I think you're right. The fairness issues uh, uh, are, are first order issues and policy concerns.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things we haven't talked about yet, or I should, let me back up and say, uh, w- we collect revenues by taxing uh, individuals and corporations. Um, and then we also spend through the tax code via tax expenditures. They're tech, things like the most common tax expenditure that may resonate with people who are listening to the radio show. Um, if you have a mortgage on your home, you, know, you get to write off your home mortgage interest. Uh, if you uh, work for somebody who provides health insurance to his or her employees, then the, the, the cost that they pay for your health insurance is not included as part of your income. So the, the employer paid health benefit uh, exclusion. In talking about raising revenue for this Build Back Better agenda, we've talked about uh, collecting more revenues by raising rates and and other things, Um, but we haven't talked much about those tax expenditures. Uh, You talked about some some low-hanging fruit that's being uh, left on the cutting room floor. Should Democrats be looking at some tax expenditures as a way, like trimming them, eliminating them uh, as a way of generating revenue aside from increasing taxes elsewhere?
0: Yeah, so great question. So a tax expenditure is any deviation from what's considered to be a normal tax system. So it's a little bit of a circular definition because nobody knows what a normal uh, tax system is. But things we were talking about earlier, like taxing capital gains at death would be closing uh, a tax expenditure. One of the biggest loopholes in the system right now uh, is the step up of basis uh, in the asset when somebody dies. Uh, the more typical, I, I having said that, I, I am not in the camp that I know a lot of people are of lumping all tax expenditures uh, to, together. They are very, very different uh, animals that get called the same thing. So I, I'm not in favor of these kind of blanket limits uh, on tax expenditures. Uh, I think one of the good things that TCJA did was very much reduce the extent to which people can use the mortgage interest deduction. By They did that by raising the standard deduction, not, not by really going after the mortgage interest deduction itself. Uh, but a lot of these tax expenditures, I think, are good ideas. I like the Deduction for charitable contributions, for example, I think uh, is important. I think if someone gives away all their income, they shouldn't be paying taxes. Now, you can argue that the the rules of what qualifies as a charitable contribution are are kind of iffy, and I agree with that. But that's an issue of the regulation, not not the not the tax exemption. Uh, the EITC, for example, I think is a great uh, benefit. Uh, uh, but yeah, there. are... So I would. If you're looking for revenues, yes, you want to look down the tax expenditure list and see candidates uh, you know, for low-hanging fruit, like you're saying. But, but um, uh, tax expenditures are not all the same, and I think that gets lost in the, in the policy debate sometimes.
1: We're going to take our second break. Uh, You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and Tory Gorman and I are talking with Bill Gale of the Brookings Institution. He's one of Washington's top experts on tax policy, and we're discussing the president's Build Back Better agenda as it makes its way through Congress, and we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I are talking with Bill Gale of the Brookings Institution about the president's Build Back Better agenda as it makes its way through Congress. And uh, we want to get to some of the health care provisions. But first, I wanted to round out the, the tax discuss, uh, discussion with something that is not in the bill as of the moment that we are recording this, but we, we never really know because it's it's not all nailed down yet. But one of the things that many members feel strongly, or some members, and depends on what state you're in, feel strongly about is this limitation on state and local taxes, the deductibility of state and local taxes, which was enacted as part of the 2017 uh, tax package. And it has its greatest effect, obviously, on states with higher incomes. And uh, they tend to be bluer states like California or new york uh, states that have high income taxes um so states like new york and 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 new jersey and members from those states are very very keen on repealing that limitation and allowing again full deductibility of state and local taxes so far uh, the the irony though is that it would benefit higher income people the most and of course democrats are uh, trying to focus their attention on uh, raising revenue from higher income people. Uh, so we don't know whether it's going to be in the final package, Bill, but but what are your thoughts about that SALT deduction and whether it should stay or go?
0: Uh, well, it. I feel like it's going to end up in the package. And the reason is something we discussed earlier with only 50 Democratic senators. Uh, every one of them is you know, a marginal vote. And uh, I think uh, the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut contingent uh, really wants this. Uh, I don't think it would be a very good idea. In fact, I think it would be an atrocious idea to repeal the limit and just go back uh, to, the, to the full deduction. It, it, first, it would cost a lot of money. Second, and again, it's not the, it's not the deficit issue there. It's that the money could be used for other purposes. Uh, and the, the distribution, of course, is only toward people who have uh, high state and local taxes, which are the affluent, the extremely affluent. Uh, and so so uh, the benefits of repeal of the salt limit, Deduction are, are just skewed mightily toward high income uh, households.
2: Let's talk about healthcare for a second. Um, yeah. One of the things that that you know Concord Coalition, yeah, you know, we 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 try and talk a lot about the dangers of our growing deficits and and debt, and we identify uh, healthcare as one of the fastest growing expenditures in the federal budget, one of the key drivers of deficits and debt. Um, we've got some healthcare provisions, uh, in this reconciliation bill. Um, you know, there are some, uh, temporary, uh, expansion in the, the premium tax credits that help people buy health insurance on the exchanges. Um, there's some, uh, some talk about expanding benefits in Medicare. Um, although we haven't finalized that yet, but then there's some provisions that we thought would be in there that might help, uh, uh, redress, uh galloping healthcare costs that that were left that so far have not made it into the bill. Um, I, I'm wondering what what your thoughts are about the way that the direction this is heading uh, in terms of the healthcare provisions, especially when you consider debt and deficits, but also more specifically Medicare and the the, the precarious financial situation of, of Medicare over the next decade.
0: Yeah, there's there's actually a lot of healthcare Provisions in the bill. Uh, there's expanded uh, support for uh, uh, health care policies on the on the exchanges that were uh, created uh, in the in the Affordable Care Act that is under Obamacare. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a big increase in Medicaid coverage, or significant increase. I think four million people. Uh, there's uh, you know Bernie Sanders were pushing for hearing dental and vision and coverage in Medicare. Uh, it sounds like it sounds like hearing is in and dental and vision are out. Um, uh, and uh, all this uh, would have made even more sense if they had allowed Medicare to negotiate on the price of pharmaceuticals. Uh, and, but that seems to have fallen by the wayside. And so in that sense, it's kind of like the bigger picture where they had, the, uh, I think, lots of interesting productive spending options uh, that got curtailed because uh, they couldn't come to agreement on the tax side. Uh, Here they've got some several benefits, which I think are valuable, uh, but they didn't they haven't come through on the cost saving side. Which is kind of a microcosm of why Medicare is in the situation it's
1: in. Yeah. It, uh, what about the idea of asking a contribution? I mean, I mean, people pay premiums or co-pays. This, as I understand it, uh, would not require any any contribution, new contribution from Medicare beneficiaries. I, I mean, wouldn't wouldn't people be willing to pay a little bit, even if they weren't paying the full freight um, for the new benefit?
0: Uh, I would think so. Um, it's sort of a matter of uh, prioritizing ways to deal with the system, though. And the, the, the obvious thing, uh, which is like a, you know, a half a trillion dollars a decade, uh, would be to get the drug prices down. Not to some discount level, but just to the same level that Medicaid and VA pay uh literally that would save a half a trillion dollars a year 500 billion dollars a year and i'm i'm uh, sorry a half a trillion dollars a decade uh just just off by a factor of ten um uh but that's real money you know uh, uh getting people to chip in premiums and stuff like that uh we're gonna have to do that again at some point uh you know when you look at medicare finances over the next uh, 20, 30 years, but it, it just, it just seems like they're leaving the best options uh, on, you know, they're taking them out of the package right now.
1: What about the idea that, um, as I understand it, Medicare has to accept any drug that is, um, you know, reasonably necessary or reasonably effective or something like that. Um, wouldn't, I mean, putting a, uh, having the negotiation, it seems to me one of the critical elements is Medicare being able to not use certain drugs that don't play ball, that don't negotiate. And can Medicare do that? I mean, can they really right. get the savings that way?
0: Right now? No, no. When, when people talk about Medicare negotiating drug prices uh that's sort of a shorthand for also including a price of non-existent that is to be technical they need to be able to to negotiate both the formulary and the price and uh uh just negotiating the price obviously isn't going to work if the company already knows that the drug's got to be on the formulary so so uh yeah to clarify that I, i i think is is a good idea but but uh the ideas for to let them negotiate both in the same way that Medicaid and VA do.
1: I can imagine you're already seeing the ads. I mean, this is where you get the the people saying, you know, my the the tell the federal government not to tell my doctor what to to do because that would. I do think that that part of it is underappreciated the the potential political downside
0: of of that.
1: Don't know, but. Just my guess is that that would be a problem.
0: Yeah, the odds are terrible. Uh, uh, And it's it's made worse by the fact that people think they have earned their Medicare coverage by virtue of having paid Medicare taxes uh, all their life. When in fact, the value of the coverage that most people are getting far exceed the current value of the taxes. That they paid over their lifetime, so there is a, there is a Medicare is an entitlement in both senses of the word, and uh, uh, so there's a PR issue there, uh, but yeah, the ads are are terrible.
2: I wish that's something we could do. Actually, is is is. make make it more apparent, this is how much you've paid into social security. This is what you're going to receive or have received from social security. This is what you've paid into Medicare. These are all the benefits that you've received so that people have a better understanding of how these programs
0: operate. I will say this is a significantly worse issue for Medicare than social security. Yes. Social security, uh, uh, I'm right at the age where we're about going to get Maybe the same or less than we put in, but but Medicare is still more, just because healthcare costs
1: right.
0: have increased uh, so much.
1: Exactly. Uh, well, that uh, that's about all we have time, of time
2: for this week.
1: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Before Tori asks a uh, mind-bending question or something, uh, Bill, uh, thank you very much for all of your insights today. We've been talking with uh, Bill Gale of the Brookings institutions about, uh, Institution about many aspects of the President's Build Back Better agenda that's uh, making its way through Congress. Uh, Bill, thanks a lot. And, Thank you for having me. Uh, and, uh, and, and say hello to Diane. <laughs> Long-time <laughs> listeners of this podcast will know that uh, Bill is married to Diane Lim, our Economist mom, uh, also a frequent uh, guest on this program. Uh, Thanks, Tori, once again. Mm -hmm. And uh, thank you, uh, listeners, for tuning in. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and uh, we'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future.